Hi everyone, I'm Amber Rose, the Religious Hippie, and welcome to A Catholic's Perspective. For those of you just finding this podcast, let me tell you a little about myself. I was born and raised a cradle Catholic until I fell away from the church for eight years. I just recently came back to the church and I could not be happier with where I am today. I am currently a junior in college and I'm studying graphic design. I am an ambassador for multiple amazing Catholic Christian companies and I love working with all of them. Now, some of you may already know me from my popular religious hippie social media channels, such as TikTok, YouTube, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. I have all kinds of Catholic content on there, so don't forget to go check those out. So the reason I wanted to start a podcast was so that I'd be able to have a longer format which people could listen to from wherever they are. I particularly wanted to address issues that young Catholics face today in the secular world, and I want to do that by providing information along with commentary and even a little of my own opinion. I can't lie, from time to time I might be discussing very controversial issues, and some will find my opinions unappealing. But I do this out of my faith and service to God. We must keep communicating with each other, respecting each other, and put each other on the path to sainthood. I think you'll enjoy the podcasts coming up, and I thank you for being here with me. Hey everybody, welcome back to my podcast. Today I have my friend here, Father Dan Duplantis. You guys have recognized him. He's been on my channel quite a few times before, and he's the host of his own podcast, The Karate Priest. Welcome, Father Dan. Great to be back. Thank you for the invitation, Amber. Of course. It's always good to have you on the show. And so today's topic, we're talking about Jesus being truly present in the Eucharist. Um, I have some questions ready for you, and then we're basically just going to talk about your own experience with that. So thank you for agreeing to do this with me. And I guess we're just ready to jump back in if you are. Yep, let's do it. Okay, perfect. So I guess the first question we're going to kind of jump into is what is your own story with Jesus being present in the Eucharist? Yeah, so I grew up as a cradle Catholic, and uh, really for me, um, uh, the Eucharist was was so important for me as an altar server. I started uh, altar serving when I was, I think, in fourth grade, so I was probably nine years old. Um, but just like growing up, you know, like I, I think we were pretty well catechized as kids uh, in terms of like what the Eucharist is. Um, and I, I remember my first communion teacher very, very well. Um, and to where like, I didn't have any doubts in the back of my mind that, you know, when they said the body of Christ at mass, like this meant, this is the body of Christ, you know, uh, I guess, you know, as far as like understanding the theology of it didn't happen so much later, um, really when I was in high school, uh, it was my junior year of high school where, um, I met a, a Pentecostal guy who was probably the first Protestant to really challenge me on my faith. Um, in South Louisiana, it's so Catholic down here. Um, that, you know, even in high school, I went to public high school and most of my friends were all Catholic. Um, and so it was amazing that it wasn't until my junior year of high school that I met a Protestant who really kind of more or less knew his stuff to the point where he could really challenge somebody like me. Um, and so, uh, and so I started asking a lot of questions. Um, and right around that time, uh, was when a parishioner, uh, in my hometown gave me a copy of a brand new book that had just been published uh, just a few months before called Jesus in the Jewish Roots of the Eucharist by Dr. Brant Petrie. Uh, Dr. Brant Petrie is a local guy here in our area. In fact, we actually grew up in the same little town and we also are cousins, I found out later. Um, so that was amazing. I was like, oh man. So I, you know, we have a world-renowned scripture scholar in the family. 
Um, so I read his book and it was incredible because uh, his experience was very similar to mine where, you know, he was questioned uh, on, on the real presence in the Eucharist by a Protestant pastor. And so he took the time to do the research and, you know, to uncover the answers. And so by reading the book really made me see that I may not have had all the answers yet about the faith, but at least I knew beyond a shadow of a doubt that the Eucharist was the real deal. It really was the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus Christ based on everything that he wrote in that book. And ever since then, I've had a huge devotion to the Eucharist, um, just understanding what it is, especially as a priest, you know, mm-hmm. there are times where like, I still stop. And, you know, after the consecration, I think to myself, like, I, I, I'm holding the God of all creation in my hands. And that is just such a cool feeling. Oh, absolutely. That's a beautiful story too. How crazy that you guys found out you were cousins. I know. And, and we actually traced it. He's my second cousin once removed. His kids are my third cousins. So I see them every now and then. Um, and my grandfather is his dad's godfather. <laughs> that is actually crazy. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Who knew? And, you know, it's so interesting how that whole line of events led to your devotion to the Eucharist. Right. Um I don't think coming back into my faith, I ever took a devotion to the Eucharist as seriously as I should have until I ended up spending a weekend with some Dominican sisters out by me. Um, their, uh, their foundress, you know, Mother Columba, she had an extreme devotion to the Eucharist. And we actually were able to get one of her books. I've looked for it everywhere on the internet, have not been able to find it. Um, I don't think it's it's like published, but it's not like out to buy, unfortunately. Otherwise I would tell everyone to read it. Um, but this woman had such a profound devotion to the Eucharist and even to go as far as to going to a country she didn't know any language of and promoting the Dominican sisters, um, at a young age, she was only like 16. So it's just crazy to see how devotions to the Eucharist can really change the hearts of people. And I know it's difficult as you mentioned, for Catholics to sometimes defend, you know, the Eucharist, because how, I mean, for those of us that are a little bit, maybe not into uh, apologetics as we should be, how are we to explain to people like Jesus being present in the Eucharist physically, but not visually? Um, Because I know I have a lot of Protestant friends, and I'm sure a lot of listeners do, or maybe they're Protestant themselves, who struggle with that understanding. Like, how can he be physically there, but not visually there. Yeah. Oh, uh, so this is really where like the, the bulk of Dr. Petrie's book, um, what he goes into is like the real presence and explaining um, exactly why, you know, not so much how, because it, it again, this is a mystery, uh, you know, how, how God's able to do this, but at least the why we can know this is the real deal. Um, he spends a lot of time going into the Old Testament. Uh, in fact, that's one of Dr. Petrie's really kind of the bulk of his work. Um, is to take things that we have in Catholicism now and to go into their Jewish roots. So he even looks at like the Jewish roots of Jesus as the bridegroom, looking at the passion in that lens, looking at, um, he wrote a book called Jesus and the Jewish Roots of Mary. And then he just released a new book last month. Uh, it's fresh off the, the, uh, the printing presses called um, The Introduction to the Spiritual Life. I have it right here on my desk. And he goes into like the Jewish roots of like Catholic spiritual uh, devotions and stuff like that. It's really, really good. So what he does with the Eucharist in, in this book, and this was his first major popular book um, after his thesis, um, 
And what he talks about a lot is uh, typology. And basically typology uh, is, is the principle that things in the Old Testament foreshadow things in the New Testament. And the way it works is that things in the New Testament um, are greater than the things in the Old Testament because the New Testament fulfills the Old, right? So what he's doing is he's going into the Old Testament to show all these different signs that prefigured the Eucharist. And the biggest one is the manna in the desert, right? And so um, when we're looking at how to maybe explain you know, the real presence, I think we have to look at it through that lens, look at it through the Old Testament, looking at the manna, which was a twofold miracle. You have to remember that it wasn't just the bread. There was also quail that appeared. You had the bread that appeared in the morning and the quail that appeared in the evening. So you have a miracle of bread and flesh. Oh, oh. Ah, <laughs> light bulb. Interesting. <laughs> so, so you see how like bread and flesh are connected there, right? Um, in the tabernacle, in the, the portable little tent that they held, the Ark of the Covenant that they offered sacrifices in the Exodus. Um, there was a table in there that was called uh, the table of the showbread. Uh, and they would put 12 loaves, one for each tribe of Israel on that bread. And they would change it out, I think, every week. Um, and so, but that was what they also called the bread of the presence. So this to signify the presence of God. And so there's so many prefigurations in the Old Testament, um, considering that, especially with the manna itself, the manna, so the bread and the quail were both miracles. Like they, they came out of nowhere, God provided it. Um, and so with that, the principle is that the things in the Old Testament, the types cannot be greater than the anti-types, which is the things that come afterwards, all right? And so in principle, if Jesus said, I am the bread of life, and at the Last Supper when he institutes the Eucharist, and he says, this is my body given for you, he cannot be speaking symbolically, because if he's saying, if, the, if he's equating this as the fulfillment of the manna, if it's just a sign, it's no greater than ordinary bread. Mm -hmm. My principle of typology the Eucharist has to be miraculous because the Old Testament bread was miraculous. And, and also for the sake that it gives grace as well. And so that's kind of the gist of the principle of how do we explain the true presence? I think a lot of it has to come through that sense of biblical typology. Oh, 100%. And that's so cool. I never really thought about that. And when I go through the Bible and I see all of these parallels that maybe I wouldn't have noticed before, you know, coming back into my faith, um, I noticed parallels between like Joseph and the Old Testament who was sold into slavery and giving Egypt the bread of life through the grain. And then St. Joseph protecting the bread of life, you know, in the New Testament by escaping, you know, to Egypt. Um, just all these really interesting parallels that I feel like in a sense, our brothers and sisters uh, in different, you know, Christian denominations don't really have a deeper understanding of it's very surface level whenever I talk to them. And when I offer these little tidbits of, uh, well, think about this or see how this is similar or the typology and all of this stuff, it really deepens their own faith when I've talked to them about it and it doesn't go against scripture. Obviously it is scripture. Um, and that's one of the best ways I've found to actually have these conversations with um, non-Catholic individuals. And so speaking of the Bible, uh, where can we find like the Eucharist being instituted in the Bible? I know we both know this, but for listeners, uh, where can they find the institution of the Eucharist? So you're going to find that in the passages containing the Last Supper. 
Um, and I don't have the chapters offhand right now, but you're going to find that in the synoptic gospels. So that's Matthew, Mark, and Luke, because what happens on the night that would be the last supper in those gospels, in John's gospel, John doesn't talk about the last supper. He's talking about the washing of feet. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you look in Matthew, Mark, and Luke's gospel, you'll find institution narratives there. Uh, you'll also find one in St. Paul's first letter to the Corinthians. Um, I'm, I think it's the first. I'm pretty sure it's not the second. It's, but it's one of his letters to the Corinthians is the first, um, where they basically say the same things. Um, and the whole reason for why Paul has very much the same words of institution that you see in, in the Synoptic Gospels uh, is to remember that Luke was a companion of Paul. Mm-hmm. And so Luke's gospel is an account of everything he heard about Christ, because Luke didn't know Christ personally, but Luke is writing his account based on what he was told by Paul. And so that's why you see from both of those perspectives, from Luke and from 1 Corinthians, they have the same words of institution, essentially. Um, So that's where you find the institution of the Eucharist. Now, as far as where do we find our greatest explanation of what the Eucharist is, that's going to be in John's gospel. And that's specifically John chapter 6. Um, which begins with the feeding of the 5,000 people, uh, because what happens is that Jesus just performed a miracle with bread, right? Bread and flesh, because it was fish as well, right? So you have another oh, yeah. miracle. So this is why the people are following him afterwards, right? Because they see this miracle that he performs with bread and flesh. And then they approach him in the synagogue in Capernaum, and they say, you know, our ancestors ate the manna in the desert. So they're kind of alluding to the fact that, okay, we see that you're performing this miracle. Like you look like you're trying to fulfill the old Testament. So, and then they ask, what sign can you do for us? As if you didn't just perform one by, you know, the multiplication of loaves and fish. But what's happening is that the expectation of the Messiah, if you go back into the old Testament, the expectation for the Messiah was that he would open the treasury of manna again from heaven. Right. And you see this, I think it's in Deuteronomy when Moses is passing away. Um, and he says, one will come like me and, and, and kind of alludes to the fact that he will open the treasure of manna again. Um, and so when the people see this in John six, they're thinking, ah, this is probably the Messiah, which they would be correct in thinking so. Um, but then what happens is Jesus kind of throws them off with what he says the real fulfillment of the miracle of the manna is. Uh, which is to say that he is the bread of life himself. And that's extremely important too. And this is, you know, kind of wrapped in that previous question also um, is to explain why this isn't just symbolism. Again, the Eucharist is both sign and reality. We would say there's a res tantum, uh, res sacramentum, and then uh, sacramentum tantum. So we have like the sign, the reality, and then the sign and reality that go together, right? It cannot be just symbolic because Jesus reiterates, I think it's about seven times in the span of five verses in John 6, the necessity of eating his flesh and drinking his blood. And then the key verses where he says, for my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. Now, the bottom line is that is not symbolic language Mm -hmm. to say that my flesh is true food, but not really. (laughs) Well, then what are you saying? Not just that, but also a ton of people ended up leaving him too. And he turned to his disciples and said, will you leave me too? And they said, to who will we follow? You are our Lord or something like that. Yeah. He would have clarified. He would have been like, oh no, I meant that metaphorically. Like, no, that's not what I meant at all. Like, you know, 
Because no. when they get to the Last Supper, it's probably when it clicks for the apostles. When he takes the bread and says, this is my body. Ah, something tangible that we can eat. Mm-hmm. By equating that bread with his body, which he has just consecrated himself, that is the means by which he intends for his people, for his church, to eat his flesh and drink his blood. Mm-hmm. He is, he's, he's doing exactly what he said he was going to do in John 6. Exactly. And I love that because it's crazy sometimes when uh, it's just right there in front of our eyes in the Bible, and yet so many people are blind to it, you know, or they think it's symbolism because of what they were raised with, you know, in their own denominations. And they've had, you know, grape juice or, you know, crackers or something to symbolize the Eucharist. And then I've heard from converts who have come into the church. They're like, it's a completely different understanding of um, the institution of the Eucharist, but also of Jesus himself, you know, and how he loves us. And um, it's one of those things. And I wanted to read a little bit from the catechism of um, what the Eucharist is too, just for those who might need a little bit more into the Catholic side of things of um, the Eucharistic understanding. And so this is from the Catechism of the Catholic Church. It's 1324. The Eucharist is the source and summit of the Christian life. The other sacraments and indeed all ecclesiastical ministries and works of the apostolate are bound up with the Eucharist and are oriented towards it. For uh, for in the Blessed Eucharist, it's is contained the whole spiritual good of the church, namely Christ himself. Um, and then basically to summarize in um, the Catechism of the Catholic Church, 1327, in brief, the Eucharist is the sum and summary of our faith. Our way of thinking is attuned to the Eucharist and the Eucharist in turn confirms our way of thinking. And so if you guys are interested, um, we do have like a whole page in the Catechism of the Catholic Church that explains the Eucharist and a little bit more in depth. And it also has a lot of um, biblical writings in there. And so that's just crazy to me how, how much God loves us to send his only son to us on earth to die for our sins. But then he stays on earth in a form where we can still receive him and he can still love us. And um, unfortunately, though, today, only 70% of Catholics, I believe it's only 70%. I'm not sure if that's gone up at all since last time I checked. Um, but 70% of Catholics do not believe in the true presence in the Eucharist. So how can we reverse that, do you think? Well, I think a big part of that, and this is why, you know, the church is, is focusing a lot on, on the Eucharist, especially like the USCCB. The United States bishops are really focusing on that and, and really making this like the year of the Eucharist um, in this coming year. Um, Part of it is, 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 is good catechesis, I think, and that's, that's the case with just about any kind of Catholic teaching that, you know, we see really widespread um, struggle with. You know, there's a lot of teachings that people struggle with, um, and, but this one seems to be, like you said, statistically, one of the biggest ones. Um, so how do we, you know, how do we reverse that trend? Um, again, first, I think it starts with good catechesis, but then also um, with, with, treating the sacrament with reverence, you know, um, people can tell that there's not, that this isn't just ordinary bread by the way we treat the Eucharist, you know? Um, and so for me as a priest, for example, you know, when you look at the mass, you know, there are points in the mass that like once the, once a particular species, so once the bread is consecrated and then once the wine is consecrated, um, it says in the missile, the, the red instruction says the priest genuflects in adoration, so what that's doing is saying that after the words of institution, he's genuflecting because that is a, a physical manifestation, outward expression 
saying that this is now the body and blood of Christ. This is now not ordinary bread and wine. Um, so I think that's a big part of it is, is, is doing those outward expressions. Um, for example, also, um, I tend to join my, 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 uh, my index finger and my thumb together once I've touched the host because they're probably still particles. Like I, I could feel it. Like, you know, some of these hosts, you know, especially if you touch them for a long time can be sticky, you know? Um, and so I can feel that like, I still have residue of the host on my fingers. And so if I can't wipe them off on the corporal, then I'll keep my fingers joined. Um, and, and so that's what I do. You know, it's, it's things like that. I think a lot of it is also the outward expression. Um, but again, I think first and foremost, the catechesis has to be there, which, you know, nowadays there's really no excuse because there's so many resources out there, you know, not just the books, which I highly recommend Dr. Petrie's book. Um, but then also, you know, Catholic Answers, you know, which is essentially Catholic Google. There's so many resources out there um, to explain the teachings of the Eucharist. Um, it, it really, and, and maybe this is an opportunity for me as a priest to kind of kick people in the pants, um, get off your lazy bum and go look it up if you don't understand it, <laughs> if I could put it so, uh, so eloquently. No, you're completely right. And the amount of times I have gotten into some kind of disagreement online with Catholics or non-Catholics, I, I sometimes just want to tell them like, hey, Google is free, you know, and but then I also have to think I'm like, but there's probably so many misleading titles on Google. Yeah, if I you don't know where to look, Google. I would use Catholic Answers because I guarantee if you go to CatholicAnswers.com or whatever their website is, it's like Catholic.org um, or something, yeah, Catholic, yeah. whatever it is. But look, up, if you Google Catholic Answers, you'll find their website and you can look up pretty much any major question. And I guarantee you they have many good articles on the Eucharist on Catholic Answers. And they have uh, like millions yeah. of articles in general. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. On any major topic of the faith, it's there. There's no excuse for why we can't really understand something. Uh, or at least try to find answers. You know, it's a terrible cop out, in my opinion, to say just because I don't understand something means I'm just not going to believe it. Right. Well, then go find the answers. God gave you an intellect and a will. Go use it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, also, blissful ignorance in itself can be considered a sin if we yeah. don't, like, if we're aware of these things and we don't try to. Yes. And, and, and the church them. specifically distinguishes between two types of ignorance um, vincible and invincible, uh, invincible ignorance basically means ignorance that can be overcome and ignorance that cannot be overcome. Mm. So vincible ignorance. Yeah, absolutely. Like there's, there's more culpability with sin because it is overcomable. You just have to actually do the work to overcome the ignorance. So that's what we mean by that. And that distinction. Right. And that's something that I learned coming into my faith where I was like, if I'm going to come into my faith, I need to understand my faith now. And so before I even um, really came back into my faith, we talked about this on your podcast where I shared my testimony a bit. Um, I started praying the rosary before I even started coming back into my faith first. And then from there, I was like, okay, well, what is the rosary? Where did it come from? And then from there, I found Catholic Answers and I was able to do all of this research and I ended up purchasing one of their books, The Essential Catholic Survival Guide. Um, they also have another one called Meeting the Protestant Challenge, but I found the Essential Catholic Survival Guide to be a little bit more in-depth um, and a little more uh, uh, detailed. Um, and so I studied that thing like crazy. I looked up all the Bible references that they had in there, linked them, um, and that's really helped me to understand my faith a lot better. And 
I feel like nowadays, um, I see this more in cradle Catholics uh, like myself than I do in converts, but we get lazy in our faith because we were just raised with it, but we were never really taught the traditions behind certain things or this or that. We were just kind of raised going to church where we were just raised doing these things already. And we were never really given an explanation. Whereas converts, they actually had to learn the explanation behind things and learn these things and start implementing these things into their lives, like church every Sunday going to confession, et cetera. It's not just a habit that they were raised with. It's now a, an actual thing that they have to implement into their lives. Yep. So I always find that a little bit interesting. And I know people like myself who struggle a little bit with scrupulosity, we always worry about, um, not receiving Jesus worthily. Like we know we're maybe in a state of, like, we know we're in a state of grace. We just went to confession, but when we approach the, you know, uh, the kneelers or the Eucharist for, you know, communion, we might feel like, am I not paying attention enough? Am I not praying the right prayers? Am I not focused enough on Christ? All these things can run through our heads. So how do we know if we're receiving him worthily or unworthily? Yeah, I, I think, you know, and you bring a good point with scrupulosity, like, Go, if you go to confession, you should be pretty good. Like, even if you kind of, you know, space out mass, because I guarantee you many priests space out during mass, especially if we have like on Sundays, we have multiple masses. Um, for example, this past weekend, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, I had a total of eight masses. Wow. And so if you can imagine, there are times where my mind is just mush. Um, and so there are times where like I'll space out reading the prayers in the missile. And then I come back to, and I'm like, I hope I just said everything right. And I wasn't actually saying what I was thinking, you know? Um, so yeah, I, uh, I wouldn't be too hard on yourself in terms of like, you know, was I really paying attention in mass? Um, unless it's, it, you just, you're so out of it. Like you just don't want to be there at all. But most people who, who have the scrupulosity issue, if they go to confession, you know, I, I wouldn't worry about that too much, you know, in terms of like the, the zoning out, because it really, if you zone for a couple of seconds, all right, fine, you know? Um, it's going to happen. Um, so I think, you know, in terms of just like receiving it worthily, just making sure you're going to confession. Uh, if you know you're in a state of mortal sin, I tell people all the time, don't wait. Like, don't wait because, you know, if, if you haven't been to confession in a year and you have, if you've been in mortal sin for most of the year, one, you shouldn't be receiving communion. Two, don't wait to go to confession then. Like, it's not just there for your, like, like a devotional period of like a year or a month. Like, Go to confession when you need to, which is to say, especially when you're in the state of mortal sin. Mm -hmm. um, so that's why I would say is a big preparation is actually know when you're in mortal sin. And if you are, go to confession. Like, don't put it off for like another few months or whatever, you know, go, go when you need to go. Right. And I think that's the biggest thing is so many people fear confession. And I think, you know, back when we did our podcast about confession we touched on all of those topics so if you guys are interested in that uh, if you scroll back a little further in my podcast father dan and i did a whole podcast about confession and how to make good confessions and how to overcome that scrupulosity and fear surrounding confession um and so it's interesting because I know a lot of people my age, you know, they just go to church because that's how they were brought up and they just go to confession because that's just what they were told to do. And now um, some of those people have been away from the faith and they've come back about the same time I have actually. And it's just like a whole 180. Like we completely understand our, I mean, not completely, but we understand better our faith and how we were raised and the reasons these things were instituted. Um, and it's one of those things where I'm like trying to figure out how can I raise my kids, you know, my future kids in a way 
where they stay with the faith and they believe in the true presence of Christ. Do you have any experience in that with kids? Uh, when it comes to kids, I, I find some kids are, are remarkable in terms of, I think, their understanding of things. Like they realize there's something here. There's something going on, especially when they get to communion. Um, and, uh, and I see this a lot when you have kids who, you know, the families come to mass all the time mm-hmm. and mom and dad receive communion. And then the kids like, like, like putting their hands up to try to grab, like, 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 like <laughs> give me some too, please, you know? And, um, and I have a friend of mine, actually a really good friend of mine that she and her family went to mass one weekend and, um, they went up for communion and, uh, and her daughter, who I think at this point is four years old, um, of course, she can't receive communion yet. So when mom and dad receive communion, she yells at the top of her lungs, I want Jesus bread. <laughs> and so Aww. I think there's there's a great capacity in kids to understand what's there. You know, I think they when they hear the phrase, the body of Christ, you know, um, especially, you know, with with these with with Catholic families who go to mass a lot, you know, and, 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 and really just kind of teach their kids. I think the kids can definitely catch on to it. Yeah, I think we always like sell kids short in their understanding of things like they're very smart and sometimes they're more likely to believe in things than we are. You know, they they sense things that we can't um, because we've cut off that childlike trust that we're called to have in Jesus. Um, And so when it comes to the Eucharist and, you know, people believing in it, one of the major ways I find people believing in the Eucharist and being the true body of Christ is through the Eucharistic miracles. Um, would you mind explaining what those are? Yeah. And before we get into the Eucharistic miracles, I, I kind of like the point you bring up with like the sense of, you know, kids, like, like almost having this, you know, almost like, almost like a, like a different kind of, like they feel the faith more than adults do. That's because mm-hmm. kids, you know, because they're so young, their rational faculties aren't fully developed like an adults are. And so for them, the experience of faith is going to be something that they feel more. Right. Now it happens a lot and you see, there's a big drop off um in in practicing catholics from the time they like graduate high school uh and then like become young adults is that they kind of expect the faith to kind of do the same thing and they don't kind of feel the fire anymore that they used to well the whole thing is you're not supposed to you know um your faith is supposed to mature to where you know you're able to intellectualize more about the faith and that it's not so much a matter of feeling but it truly is something like in a sense of the will and the mind to what God is, is telling us is true. Um, I think that's really, really important. Um, and so with that, yes, the next thing would be kind of with Eucharistic miracles. Uh, what Eucharistic miracles are, are cases of consecrated species of the Eucharist. So whether it be the, 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 the body or the blood, where they actually turn into flesh and blood, like mm-hmm. physically turn into human flesh and blood. In the process of transubstantiation, which is the process by which the bread and wine become the body and blood of Christ, there are times, usually in the presence of, of unbelievers, people who doubt the real presence, that Eucharistic miracles will happen. Um, and so, and there's many examples. In fact, Blessed Carla, who was just beatified um, in the last year, um, put together a database. Uh, and this is why he's called a millennial saint, because he actually put together a database of Eucharistic miracles. Um, and there's thousands of them, if I'm not mistaken. You think of the history of the church, there's so many Eucharistic miracles that have happened. Um, I can't remember exactly where this one came from, but one that, that always sticks out in the back of my mind that was told to me by another priest was wow. uh, 
was that there was a host that that turned into flesh and blood during the consecration. And for any of these instances, they're sent in for scientific testing, all right? And so it was sent to a, a doctor who at the time was an atheist. And he did all the tests. No one told him where this, this specimen came from. He was just told to, to basically study it and, and, and give a report as to what is this. And what he found was that it was actually a miniature heart. It was cardiac muscle, but not just muscle. It was actually a miniature heart with four distinct chambers. The blood type was Mediterranean. And so when he was finally told, because he asked, what is this? And when he was told that it was a consecrated host that had actually physically turned into the body and blood of Christ, he mm -hmm. ended up converting and becoming Catholic. Wow. Isn't it crazy how like miracles like that, like I know there's so many small miracles that happen, but that's like a big miracle that yeah. happens. And to be able to witness that and be the person to actually uh, do testing on that and not know you know, I would almost be like nervous, like, yeah, oh my gosh, I just three, tested on Jesus. Yeah. The three big findings of, of that report was first and foremost, that it was an actual heart. Second was actually the fact that, um, it was also put under a lot of stress. He said with the scar tissue that was on this heart, it had suffered greatly. Mm. And then finally was the fact that the blood type was Mediterranean. It's crazy. Yep. Isn't that so crazy? Yeah. <laughs> wow. And I've heard so many stories like where there was a priest who was doing it was celebrating mass and it, he was doubting in the middle of it or something what, during the consecration and the host turned, you know, to to the real body of Christ. And I mean, it's a real body of Christ, but, you know, physically um, yeah. or, you know, where you can actually see it. Yeah. Um, and that never made him doubt again. Like he never doubted again. Yeah. Um, and there's a story that I always enjoy. Uh, sharing with my other followers. Um, and it's basically uh, the host of Siena, Italy. This is from the 18th century. Um, it's one of my favorite Eucharistic miracles. So I just wanted to read it really quickly. Um, on August 14th, 1730, while the Catholics of Siena, Italy were attending a special festival for the eve of the Feast of the Assumption, thieves entered the church of St. Francis and stole a golden um, ciborium containing hundreds of consecrated hosts. Two days later, someone noticed something white protruding from the offering box at another church in Siena. The priests opened the box and found the missing hosts inside entangled in cobwebs and dirt. After being cleaned as much as possible, the hosts were placed in a new uh, ciborium and taken back to the church of St. Francis for prayers and reparation and veneration. Since the hosts were dirty, the priests decided not to consume them, but let them simply uh, deteriorate. Over the next few decades, everyone was amazed to see that the hosts did not deteriorate, but actually appeared fresh. The hosts remain in this state today, 285 years later, and can still be seen in the Basilica of St. Francis in Siena, Italy. So it's literally this matter that is supposed to decay and things of that nature, and it's been preserved, or even... Um, when this podcast comes out, it'll be a month or two later. But recently there was a car fire. Um, a priest was bringing consecrated hosts to those in nursing homes and there was his entire car caught on fire. He's okay, but the entire car was destroyed. But in the passenger seat, there were those consecrated hosts and the prayer book, not one page of that prayer book was touched and neither were the hosts. It was completely preserved. And there's actually like a little circle of like, chair or seat, you know, 
car seat that wasn't even scorched or touched around the hosts in the prayer book, but the entire car was absolutely destroyed and it blew up and everything. So I don't know. I just think that gives more proof. And I always suggest to those who struggle believing in the true presence to look up Eucharistic miracles and, uh, you know, study one or pick three and study them throughout the few months you have and make it, make it a thing during Lent, you know? Um, yeah. Cause there are hundreds, if not thousands of miracles. And like I said, that if you could find the database that blessed Carlo put together, mm-hmm. um, then that right there is just a treasury of all these miracles. Exactly. Exactly. Um, so yeah, I guess just to wrap it up, our last question would be, what are some tips we can tell people listening today if they're struggling to believe in the true presence? Uh, yeah, first I would say is it's not like the force from Star Wars. You can't just like search your feelings um, to, to, to feel that, you know, this is the Eucharist. You know, it doesn't exactly work that way. You know, this right. isn't the force. Um, you know, a big part, and, and, and this is where, you know, I think Thomas Aquinas is so brilliant when he writes the Tom Timerico, is the, is the line that says, faith will tell us Christ is present when our human senses fail. Um, so a lot of this comes down to faith, you know, just that, you know, and, and remember how much Jesus says, uh, and when he, when he tells doubting Thomas, he says, blessed are those who believe and have not seen, you know, mm. um, that seeing isn't believing. And uh, in many ways, I think that believing is more of seeing. Um, and so uh, that's what I would say. I, I think is it's, it, and, and don't oversimplify things either because it looks like bread. It feels like bread. It has all the accidental properties of bread. And when we get into, and this is a whole nother different topic of Aristotelian hylomorphism. Uh, but when you look at matter and form uh, or, or substance and matter is another way of looking at substance and accidents. That's the two substance and accidents. The accidental properties are bread. It looks, sounds, tastes, feels like bread. But the substance itself, the substantia, as we would say in Latin, is the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Christ. So right. it's a, lot of, a lot of this does require some rationalization, requires a lot more of the intellect than it does any kind of sensation or feeling. It's interesting because... I'm not going to be sexist here or anything, but I have noticed it's more difficult for men to believe in the true presence than it is for women per se. Not to say that women don't, but I've noticed that in my guy friends, it's been really difficult for them to believe in the true presence because they're so logically driven that if they can't see it, they don't believe it basically. And it's interesting though, because once they do come to the conclusion that it is the true body and blood of Jesus Christ, they have the strongest devotion I've ever seen um, in the men. Uh, but it takes a lot of faith and trust and something that is tangible, but at the same time requires you to understand it's a mystery and we're never going to fully be able to comprehend it in our human minds. Um, and I just seen, I think, I just think that's really interesting that sometimes I see it more in the men than the women. Um, I know for me personally, I tend to just trust a lot. Um, especially in the faith, because the faith isn't wrong. You know, people in the faith can be wrong, but the faith itself is never wrong. Um, And it's just interesting to see how, uh, I guess, the different genders believe in the Eucharist and stuff. I don't know. It's just a little tidbit. I don't know why, but that was just something. No, you you have a very fair point. And that's just the complementarity that exists between men and women is that men tend to be very tactile. All right. We tend to work well with physical things. And so... For us, if it looks like a duck and it walks like a duck and it quacks like a duck, 
more than likely we're not going to think it's a moose um you know so <laughs> right if, if that's that's how it is but that's where that's where you, you bring up a good point is that that's where the intellect is very important uh because for men once you can convince a man this is extremely true for me because of my choleric temperament um uh, for me as a choleric like you know if i ask if i ask you why if you tell me to do something and i say why i don't say i don't question why as a challenge I'm literally asking you, I'm telling you, convince me as to why I should do this, because once you have convinced me, I'm sold. And you're right, that is a very big thing with men, because I find men tend to be more choleric than women do. And so with that, I do find that if you can intellectually convince a man of something, then you've got him, he's sold. And so, yeah, I do think there's a lot of truth in what you just said in terms of the temperaments. Absolutely. And that's one of the best reasons there is to go and do your research on the faith and to find that intellectual side and to fulfill that. So I guess with all of that being said, do you have any last words for anyone? Um, Like I said, I'll go ahead and give a shout out to Dr. Petrie's book again, because I, I firmly believe in it so much. If, if my bedroom caught on fire and I can only save two books, I would save my Bible <laughs> and that book. Um, it, it's that important. That book is called Jesus in the Jewish Roots of the Eucharist by Brant Petrie. Uh, he has his own website. I think it's like uh, brantpetrie.com or brantpetrie.org. He's got all of his books there. You can even get signed copies. Um, brilliant, brilliant work. Um, but then also with that, I would say uh, another encouragement is to not just do the intellectual formation, but also the practical spiritual formation, uh, which is to say, go to an adoration chapel. You know, um, There's some times where if you're struggling with faith in the true presence in the Eucharist, Sometimes that could only be fixed by spending time in the true presence of the Eucharist, in the presence of the real presence, I guess you could say, right. uh, whereas your presence um, speaks to the presence of the Eucharist and vice versa. So, yeah. Very nice. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for coming on, Father Dan, again. I'm sure we'll have you back on to talk about the, other topics. The pleasure as always. Thank you. Yeah, of course. And with all that being said, I hope this helped you guys understand the Eucharist a little bit better and the ways that you guys can um, start a devotion or deepen your devotion to the Eucharist. And with all that being said, I hope you guys enjoyed this podcast and I will talk to you guys in the next one. Bye. questions or comments about today's episode, email me at thereligioushippie at gmail.com or leave a voice message at anchor.fm forward slash thereligioushippie. I'd love to hear your thoughts. Thanks for listening. Thank you for listening to this podcast. Please be sure to rate and review this episode. This podcast is produced by Todd Fisher and distributed by Metacortex Publishing. This podcast is copyright. The previously trademarked or copyright content is used by permission. Information and opinions stated in this podcast should not be construed as medical advice. Please be sure to visit the official website for the International Association of Metatomics at metatomics.org or find us on social media for other unique content.